I'm Tony Payne and welcome to another edition of The Painful Truth, a weekly text and audio journal where we aim to speak the truth of Christ crucified to each other for our mutual benefit. And thanks for the emails and comments uh, where a number of you have done just that. I've really appreciated hearing from you. And in this week's edition, I want to answer an insightful question that Dave Pitt posed after reading my piece about small groups and one another edifying speech. Dave wrote in with this question. Hi, Tony. Thanks for the great article. It provides some really helpful language around the difference between the preached word and the one anothering the New Testament speaks of. You focused on the way the word grows Christians. I'm wondering if the same idea applies to the way the word saves people. In other words, the difference between the proclamation of the gospel at an event and inviting an unbeliever to read the Bible with you. I guess the question is, is there an equivalent language to the one anothering for what the Christian does with an unbeliever in the New Testament? All I can say is, well spotted, Dave. This is a really good question. And in our current strange circumstances, perhaps an even more pressing question. In a context where many of our normal event-based opportunities for gospel proclamation are denied to us, what is the role and place of smaller scale one-another-style gospel interaction? That's a pressing question for our particular moment. Now, the research I did in my PhD focused on one-another speech within the Christian community, as Dave points out. But there are good reasons to think that this way of thinking about different kinds of speech could provide some fresh angles about Christian speech outside the Christian community as well. And who knows, we might even be able to cut through some of those old and fairly tired debates uh, that we've had at various points about evangelism and the everyday Christian. Now, while there are lots of passages within the New Testament that speak about one another speech within the Christian community, 25 passages by my count, we certainly have fewer passages that touch on the spiritually significant speech of everyday Christians to outsiders. I can only spot about half a dozen. And in the time and space that we have here, I'm going to look at just three of them and see what light they cast on the question that Dave raises. The first one is in Acts chapter 4 and in verse 31. In Acts 4, the apostles Peter and John had been boldly proclaiming the gospel and facing opposition as they did so. And so the whole company of believers gathers together and prays. And they pray for your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. And then God answers that prayer, perhaps in a way that surprised them. The whole place is shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, it says in verse 31, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, in many ways, this is like Pentecost all over again. The Spirit is poured out and the believers pour out speech. All the same, I wonder, did the believers in Acts 4 go out and do exactly what Peter and John had been doing in bold public proclamation? I guess that's possible, but also very possibly not. Was the context in which all the believers spoke the word of God with boldness as varied as their different circumstances and opportunities, perhaps, such as in their households or in their regular interactions with outsiders? I suspect so, but we don't really know. However, whatever the context, what the speech of Peter, John, and all the believers had in common 
was its enabling power. That's the Holy Spirit. Its essential content, the apostolic word of God, and its motive and character, and that is boldness in the face of threats. Now, we see a similar commonality in Colossians chapter 4. In that passage, Paul asks for prayer for his speaking of the word. He's speaking of the logos in verse 3. And then he urges the Colossians themselves to let their word with outsiders, their logos in verse 6, to be always gracious and seasoned with salt. And so the essential content is in some sense shared. It's the speaking of the Logos. But the context or mode of the speech does seem to be different. Paul is an itinerant proclaimer. He's now imprisoned for this proclamation, for his preaching. The Colossians are having regular, daily, presumably, interactions with outsiders. And their context is to make the most of those opportunities to converse graciously and saltily to communicate their logos, their word, in that way. We see the same kind of pattern in 1 Peter, just briefly. Peter's readers have received and set their minds on a living hope, the living hope of the resurrection of salvation, through the evangelistic preaching of the living and abiding word of God that comes out in chapter 1 on several occasions. And this is the hope, the hope of the gospel, that they are to explain and defend as they interact with outsiders in gentle, respectful conversations. That's what 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16 says. And again, you have the same content, a hope that we have, the hope of the gospel that we've received through proclamation. And that hope, that content is conveyed and defended and discussed in a different mode of interaction with outsiders. So what we see in each of these examples is the preached or evangelized word of the gospel having its counterpart in the speech of believers more generally with outsiders in a way that is obviously very closely related, but also different. But different how? And here is where I think the parallel work that I've done on the one another edifying speech of the Christian community just might be useful. You see, as I looked at all the passages regarding one another edifying speech, what became apparent was that the best and clearest way to differentiate the one another speech of Christians from the preaching teaching speech of pastors and teachers was not in their essential content, both were centered on the apostolic gospel, not in their motivation. Both were driven by love for others in light of God's purposes, and not even in their overall purpose, because both kinds of speech sought to see others grow to maturity in Christ, and not either in their sense of obligation or commission. Both sorts of speakers were urged or are urged and commanded to engage in such speech as they have opportunity. The significant difference lay in the function that different forms of speech have in bringing understanding and change to the hearer. I'll say that again. The difference between them lay in the function that different forms of speech have in bringing understanding and change to the hearer. Proclamatory teaching, preaching speech, well, it teaches and guards and applies the whole framework of the gospel to its hearers. 
Whereas one another speech, the edifying speech of believers, takes that same truth and brings it to bear on the particular contextual challenges and circumstances of particular people to remind them and clarify and encourage and correct and exhort the hearer to respond. And it wouldn't be surprising at all if gospel speech to outsiders had a similar shape. And the relatively few New Testament references we have, like the ones we discussed above, certainly suggest that it does. In other words, there's an outsider-directed gospel speech that teaches and proclaims and explains the truth of Christ in all its facets. And there's an outsider-directed gospel speech that brings the word of Christ to bear on the particular questions and life circumstances of particular people in their circumstances. Both of these kinds of speech are part of the overall evangelistic effort and both play a really important part. Let's see if I can tease this out in the following scenario. Let's imagine our Christian friend Fred, who has received teaching and example and training in this area, he's motivated to see his friend Bill come to know Christ and Fred feels quite confident to broach the subject with him. He doesn't just wait for Bill to raise the issue or to ask questions. He's quite happy to spend time with Bill, and he actually prays for and looks for opportunities to talk about Jesus with Bill in some way. And the two of them have various conversations over time in which Fred touches on various aspects of the gospel because Fred knows the gospel well and he's had some training in how to articulate it. And Fred tries to answer some of Bill's questions as he can, and he prays for Bill that Bill would respond. Then Fred invites Bill to an event, to a Christianity Explored course or an Introducing God course or something similar. And at that course, Fred's pastor explains the gospel very clearly week by week. And in the table discussion that takes place afterwards, Fred has the chance to ask his specific questions and issues and raise them with Bill and with the other friends there at the table. And after the course, Bill is interested, but still not quite sure whether he's going to respond or how. And so Fred offers to meet up with him again, personally, one-to-one, and work through something with him, something like you, me, and the Bible, or some other similar resource. And as they do so, Fred has the opportunity to talk honestly with Bill about the importance of responding to the claims of Christ. And when Bill does decide to become a Christian, Fred is right there with him ready to guide him in how to do that and in what the next steps might be. Now, throughout this whole process, there are two kinds of speech overlapping and intermingling and each performing a vital function in bringing Bill to the point of clearly understanding the gospel and repenting and putting his faith in Christ. My contention is that there are two overlapping, complementary zones of outsider-focused gospel speech just as there are within the Christian community. Now, I worry that this week's painful truth is already becoming painfully long, so I will conclude with two brief practical implications. The first is that if I'm right, we should view group-based event evangelism and individual one-to-one gospel conversations not as alternatives, but as complementary partners. They perform different vital roles in bringing the word of Christ to the outside world. Why make them competitors? They work together and they both perform vital functions. Secondly, both kinds of speech, 
require focus and intentionality. They require teaching and preparation and training. Putting on a high-quality, well-functioning gospel event, like a, an Introducing God course or a Christianity Explored course or an evangelistic mission or a set of talks, these things don't happen without careful planning, without good preparation. And likewise, individual Christians won't take up the important complementary task of applying the gospel to the particular circumstances of their friends unless they too are prepared, unless they're taught and encouraged and equipped to do so. My observation is that in the circles I move in, certainly, we have largely given up on this latter task, that is, teaching, encouraging and equipping individual Christians for one another gospel interaction with outsiders. And as in all circumstances, when our vision of church or ministry fails to reflect the thinking and emphasis of the New Testament, as I believe it does at this point, we are and will be the poorer for it. Well, thanks for listening to this week's Painful Truth. If you haven't yet subscribed, please do so. Head over to thepainfultruth.substack.com. That's the painful truth spelt in that strange way, dot substack. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K, substack.com. It's really the best way to get both the text and the audio versions sent to you each week. They just land in your inbox, and you can choose whether you want to listen or read right there, usually on a Monday. Uh, this week, this coronavirus crazy week, has made me run just a little late, but hopefully I'll be back on track next Monday. A second little P.S. As I half suspected, even as I hit send this email to everyone, on last Monday's edition, the further tightening of restrictions over the past week has really put paid to the suggestion I made about physically getting together in groups of three, certainly for the time being in my part of the world. I think the principle, though, still remains very important. In this difficult time, we're going to have to lean hard on our smaller trellises, if I can use the trellis and vine language, our smaller groups, our smaller relationships, groups of three, four, five, six people, even if those groups are online. I note that one prominent church near where I live has already divided their small groups in half, from 10 to 12 down to 5 to 6, in the recognition that running an online meeting of 10 or 12 people is really quite difficult, not just for the dynamics of the meeting, but also for the leader and what's required. I suspect that over the next several difficult, strange months, our smaller gatherings will be very, very important indeed. No doubt there's more to say on that, but that's all that needs to be said for this week. I'm Tony Payne. Thanks for being with me. Bye for now.